Mm-hmm. I always believe that if that it's the right person because you are better because of them. You have gotten better. And when we got married, I became a better person, and he became better. All his friends said after he met you and he married you, he was a lot. We'd never seen him as happy as he was. He was healthier. He was happier. He was a nicer guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't always like that. He wasn't until he married you. And I thought that's how you know you were with the right person. They allow you to be the best you can be. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to my fourth episode of my Learn With Lyle's podcast. Um, I want to start off by giving a huge, huge shout out to my friend Conan Ho. Um, So as a beginner podcaster with very primitive equipment, um, I made some errors that really messed up my audio, and I thought that it wasn't going to be fixable. Um, So I was very, very upset, but Conan was somehow able to fix it. So a huge, huge, huge thank you to him. Um, So in this episode, I talked with my auntie Connie, who was a former doctor in the White House. Um, She's the first Filipino-American Navy Admiral, and she now works at the Center for Executive Medicine in Arizona, which she founded herself in 2005. I've never actually met my auntie Connie, so I was very intimidated to talk to her. Um, But she was so nice and so great, and we had a really good conversation. Um, We started out by talking about our family and catching up and things like that. Um, And then we talked about her time at the White House. And then we talked quite a bit about relationships and her late husband and their love story. And then, of course, since this is Learn With Lyle's, we talked about the things that she's learned on her journey so far. So, yeah, thank you again for tuning in and I hope that you enjoy. I'm good. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. How was your New Year? Yes, Happy New Year. It was good. Um, just lots of family time and seeing some friends. How about you? How are, How are your holidays? It was good. I um, I I was busy because I'm always on call to my patients, so I was handling a few things. But I got to visit my son Andrew, uh, who is your probably your third cousin. You're related because yeah, you have some relation because you had the same great great-grandparents, right. great-great-grandparents, but uh, he lives about 35 minutes away. He's married, and they have three little kids, so mm-hmm. I went to go visit my grand, my Apu, so I went to visit my grandchildren. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and yeah. so you got to see your mom and dad and your nephew? Yeah, yeah, Tracy, um, so my oldest sister had uh, Carter in September. So yeah, we've just been spending so much time with him. I'm, I love him so much. I'm so obsessed with oh, him. <laughs> they're so cute. That's the best part is having, having the babies to play with. Yeah. They're so, Great. so cute. Yeah. How far away do your parents live? Um, so I still live at home. So, um, uh-huh. oh, great. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then Tracy is about 10 minutes away. So we see her and, and Carter and Carlos like all the time. <laughs> Oh, that is so cool. I haven't seen your mom and dad for a while. I think, uh, let's see, with um, uh, Auntie Marie, I don't know if she was there, Auntie Begging, if she was there at her funeral, your Mm -hmm. folks were. But uh, Um, I saw your Auntie Tessie there. Yeah, yeah. I saw her. It's so sad. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the holidays are, like, meant to be, like, such a super fun time, and usually they are, but, yeah, this past year for the Hinko and Mary and all, family there's yeah, been a lot gosh. of loss this year 
I know. It just it's heartbreaking that every time we all get together, somebody dies. So I yeah. I was telling my kids, they, it's a, my youngest son, I said, you need to get you know you get need to get married and have some babies, <laughs> and that way we can have some happy events. Yeah, and definitely. We just more happy times to make up for it. But you no, know, you were born in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you've been there all your life, living there. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, your your dad moved there. I'm trying to think how old was he when, when they emigrated. He and Tessie and Remy and Irene, they moved from Santa Rita there. Yeah, so, yeah. Years ago. Yeah, I know yeah. my dad had considered um, going to the States because cause Uncle Boy is out there, but, but no, yeah, I ended up settling yeah. in Canada. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's okay that we have the Canadian cousins there. So yeah, for I sure. I go there. I used to go often because my late husband mm-hmm. um, was born in Calgary. He was Canadian, he's still a citizen, and then he went to U of T engineering, and then he was on the board there. So we would go to Toronto for board meetings often. So we would fly yeah. into there. So I haven't been in a while. I'm supposed to go back sometime in the summer. Last time I was there was. The Calgary Stampede. Oh, cool! But then I'll go back probably, probably in the spring or summer because I'll scatter some of his ashes there in, in Calgary. Yeah, he wanted that done. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so are you still writing full time? Is that is that your passion? You love to do um, your podcasts and your blogs and yeah. Well, I I it's something I've been interested in for sure. Like I went to school for journalism, so um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I like to kind of do this on the side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just like a little bit of background, um, about my podcast. So I originally started off, um, just having my blog and in it I would talk about like, um, just whatever I'm going through, um, just being as like a 20 something and talking about the things that I've been learning about. Um, but then I figured like, I feel like it'd be more useful to also talk to other people too about like what they're going through. So then that's why I wanted to start my podcast. Um, yeah, so then, of course, I wanted to have you on it because um, I've been hearing so much about you since forever. Um, and we've never actually Aww. met, but... Um, I don't think so. Yeah, no. How old are you now? I'm 27 20. now. <laughs> so you're... My youngest son, Jay's 30, so you're just mm-hmm. three years younger than yeah. him. So we probably... Yeah, because usually it would have been a big family event, and probably most of the time... It's your your mom and dad come out. Mm-hmm. So I need to just come out there and visit y'all because I love Toronto. From Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Mississauga, right? Um, yeah. we live in Curtis, so it's like about an hour away from Toronto. But yeah, my parents told me to tell you to to come and visit us. <laughs> you should come here in the winter. I, yeah, I'm in Scottsdale, and uh, this is it's beautiful here. And you like you like meditation. You like hiking. You like a lot of the sort of metaphysical, I'm building a house in a place called Sedona. Mm-hmm. If you Google, have you been to Sedona, Arizona? No, never. If you Google Sedona, Arizona, it's the place of the Red Rocks. It's south of the Grand Canyon, and it's mystical. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved that place. It's always something special to me. And I, uh, before my husband died, I told him, I said I, would, I was going to buy property there. And the, the resort I go to is called the Enchantment Resort. It's in the canyon in Sedona, and I've been there 45 times already, and they have a spa there, they do massage, they do facials, but they also do tarot cards, and they do things with psychics and mediums, so it's fascinating. Yeah, that's so, so I, I've been there so, yeah, and, and so, well, the, the house is being built, it will not be ready until next 
the end of this year. So once the house is built, I have three bedroom suites downstairs. That's when you can visit. Mm-hmm. You can come stay there with me and visit, and then go hiking and have restaurants. It's a fun getaway place. Yeah, that would be amazing. And I'm always saying, like, oh, I need to see more of Canada and the States. So maybe that would well, be yeah, my opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've got family here, and you can see, visit my son, Andrew, but but the nearest one to Canada is Jason, who's in Minneapolis, my youngest one. Okay, cool. He's in Minnesota. He's in Minneapolis. So it's very close to Toronto, Mm -hmm. Mississauga. It's it's a quick flight. But he's there, and he's getting his MBA in business, and he's going to work for General Mills in marketing this coming summer. So it's really cool. Yeah, that's exciting. Tell me about your podcast. Yeah, tell me about your background. Um, yeah, so I, um, I only have a few episodes, so I first interviewed my mom, and then, um, we talked about, uh, being, um, an immigrant to Canada from the Philippines, um, and then I talked to one of my best friends about her, um, coming out story, um, and then, um, I went to a surf camp, and then I interviewed one of the surf instructors there, so that was really cool. Cool! Yeah, so now I have you! (laughs) Oh my god, well, see, it sounds like... You know, adventure. Your adventure is your thing, right? I guess so, yeah. Maybe you study journalism and, yeah. you know, um, what do you love about journalism? Um, oh, most of it, really, like the storytelling and then getting to know other people and, and their backgrounds and um, just, like, hearing where other people are coming from and, and hearing their story. Yeah, and and you've that gotten really into it, too, right? Like, I, it's so funny to hear your voice because I was listening to your podcast and now talking to you so it's so funny well people i always figure everyone's got a book within them every life you touch everyone's got a story and the question i have is what am i meant to learn from them what are they going to do to help me become a better person and part of my journey there i always believe that people come into your lives for a reason there's no accident that we're talking today there was a reason this happened and then my my mission is to find out what was that intention what was the plan how did that interaction impact my life and the, and the, the course of things in my life? And I've been amazed at all the, the things that have come that way. Mm-hmm. If you're open to that, you, you'll grow in so many ways beyond what you can imagine. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, another thing, too, is like I just feel like everybody um, would benefit from being more empathetic and just like trying to be more understanding of other people. So I feel like when you yeah. hear like other people's backgrounds and hear their stories and like, it just forces you to, to be more understanding. So I just right. want everyone to when see I, like that. Yep. You know, when I do my radio show, it's on voice America and it's once a month mm-hmm. instead of every week. Cause that's just too much. The prayer that I send out to God is at least one person hears that podcast or that show and it touches them in a good way. At least one person. That's all I care about. And actually, I, I, I've got the statistics. It's thousands of people. It's international. Mm-hmm. But that, I care as long as one person hears your message, one soul hears it. And also, from the stories that people tell you, it's like no matter the suffering or struggles or triumphs, you're meant to learn something. Because in their shoes, how did you learn? You know, what did you learn from that? And that's the fun part. You can live life vicariously through the lives of other people. How would you live that way? Is that a life you want to live? Mm-hmm. And you're at a great age because you're absorbing that information. You're you're open to opportunities. Your your mind is open. It isn't fixed. You know, you're you're, you're flexible and you, you can listen to see what's out there, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
Definitely. Um, yeah, I really like that idea of just if one person could hear this and take something out of it. Um, because I feel like with like with your podcast, I'm sure obviously like tons of people listen to, to you and what you have to say because um, you've lived such a important life. Um, but with me, like I'm just kind of starting out. So I'm like, oh, if anybody listens to this, I'll, I'll take you. <laughs> so I'm, I like no, to hear but that. See, look at your experience in life. You, you, you know, you're, you're 27 years of living. And, and you're in that transition. There's a really good book that I enjoyed reading that I gave copies to my sons. It's called The Defining Decade. And the author is Meg J-A-Y. She's a PhD. I think she's in North Carolina. And she said that she's a therapist. And what she found was that a lot of people think, well, my 20s, I could blow that off. It doesn't matter what I do because, you know, I got the rest of my life. But on the contrary, her studies have shown as a therapist that what you do in your 20s sets up the, the blueprint for the rest of your life. For example, whoever you're dating, people think, well, I can just, I can sleep without ever, it doesn't matter, you know, I can be social, it doesn't matter. Well, you're using that time in your 20s to decide who your life partner is going to be for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever you do for a job, well, it doesn't matter, I can, I can go to Starbucks or I can just, you know, I can just, you know, be a, a, a barista. No, what you're doing now sets up what you do for the rest of your life. You know, we have a distant cousin who was a journalist for CNN. Oh, cool. I, I, I met her through, yeah, I met her through Ancestry. I'll, I'll pull her name up, but she studied journalism at UCLA. I think she was on the Mariana. That's right, you are related because we, we have your mom and dad. Yeah, I mean, your dad has, his parents are the siblings of my mom and dad. Yeah, so, it's so funny. Ties, but but the Mariano side, there is a distant relative, and she grew up in L.A., and she became she went to UCLA journalism and was a CNN financial reporter. Then she quit, and that was like a year or two ago, she and I were communicating, and then she quit CNN. She lived in New York and then was trying to find her way. So it would be interesting to connect you two. Yeah, that's she so was, cool. She actually, yeah, I just thought of her. My, I have to pull up her name. But she... She actually wrote a book. I'll have to find out the book. I'll find out the CNN journalism. I'll, I'll Google her, mm-hmm. and I'll connect you with you, Kate. Okay, because cool. Thank you. You look at the – because, you know, what you do is really the ancient art of storytelling. Mm-hmm. We're storytellers. Mm-hmm. That's really it. And medicine, I, I'm just taking data from people's stories and figuring how science interacts and how I can help them. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. But most of what I do with my executives is I listen to their story. Right. And, and post-secondary but um he always talks about like had he gone to post-secondary that he would have 
um, like worked in the in the health industry. So my parents like yeah. really oh, yeah. really wanted me to uh, become a doctor. Um, That's a Filipino thing. Oh, that is so absolutely, <laughs> yeah, it really is. But I always thought it's about so journalism. Asian. I know. Yeah. It's very Asian. You know, you have uh-huh. to have a doctor. You have to have an. That's very Asian. Yeah, yeah for sure. Exactly. I think I think my parents were hoping that I would be like the Canadian version of you. <laughs> so rather than oh, being like, so... yeah, like oh, rather than being a doctor in the White House, I could work for like the the Prime Minister in Ottawa. The Prime <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So funny, but yeah, that did not happen for me, but. You gotta find you gotta find your path. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's, you know, my boys, my my their father, my uh, my ex husband is an attorney, mm-hmm. and neither one of my sons went into law or medicine. And I never pushed them. I just said, find what God wants you to do in this life. That's mm-hmm. it. That's all I care about. God wants you to do. And my oldest, they each have MBAs. My oldest son um, works for McKesson, which is a large distribution company for medical products. And he actually worked in my practice for two years. Mm-hmm. So he got interested in medicine that way. But I hired him this last year to be my business consultant for my practice. So he does consulting for me. Mm-hmm. Addition. And then my youngest son is the marketing guy. He loves yeah. marketing. He's a marketing guru, worked for Target headquarters. So I find them fascinating. That's the part. I don't I don't need to have a mini me. You just have yeah. to find what you're meant to do in this life. I, I don't tell people, you know, I see so many doctors who are so unhappy to hate what they do mm-hmm. because they're, they wanted to fulfill their parents' dream. And you're the only one who can fulfill your parents' dream are your parents. This is your life. You have to fulfill your dream. Right. You know, you, you can't, you, and that's what you learn. And as Filipino, growing up, I was always trying to please my parents. Mm-hmm. And it even happened really with my relationships. Like, you know, there was a lot of things in our culture. But, you know, you have to be a virgin till you get married. You have to do this. You have to do, you know, and all this. And it's like, you don't date. It's bad to date. It's like, oh, my God. And it's like, so, it, you know, you have to grow through that in your Filipino culture. And mm-hmm. I grew up in a Filipino culture in the United States. You're growing, you grew up in a Filipino culture in Canada. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that? How do you, you know, how do you identify yourself? Who are you? Mm-hmm. So that's that journey. That's the yeah. exciting part. Yeah, it is exciting. <laughs> so much to figure out. Um, but yeah, like I love how you say, like, yeah, you just gotta do what you want instead of, um, like, kind of just doing what your parents want you to do. And I think that my parents are realizing that too. And I and I think like ultimately, if I just end up being happy, then my parents will will be happy with whatever whatever that means. Yeah, for me, exactly, so. mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. When you talk about happiness, there's there are two books. Actually, I'll send you a copy. There are two books to read. The, the one is about the defining decade by um, Meg Jay, which is a PhD. The other one, I interviewed her on my show, and her name is Emily Esfahani Smith. And she grew up in Canada, and then I think she went to Dartmouth. And she's a she's a journalist, and she wrote this wonderful book entitled "The Importance of Meaning." Mm-hmm. Because she was saying how a lot of people want to be happy, and happy is transient. It's easy to get unhappy. Mm-hmm. But she says is what you have to seek is meaning in your life. Because she talked about the high suicide rate of millennials. Why are they dying? Why are they killing themselves? Because because they can't reach the, the happy part. And but if you find you find your joy every day, but if you find it through the meaning part, and she said the four pillars of meaning, and I this is the part I condensed. Four things you need to have a meaningful life. The first one is purpose. What? Why am I in this life? What am I meant to do? The second is belonging. 
who are my people? Who do I belong to? The third is storytelling, which is what you do. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, you have to tell your story. There's a lot of mental illness linked to people who have default or faulty storytelling skills. They're always the victim. It's always poor me versus, oh, I'm a survivor. I got through this. Mm-hmm. And the fourth is transcendence. How do I move on? So I just, I love Love those things. I love quoting those. So mm-hmm. I'll have to send you those books. Yeah, for sure. I love reading books like that. I love reading like self-help books. <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to talk also too about your book, The White House Doctor. So I wanted to start off by like talking about your, your time in the White House. Um, what was that experience like? It was surreal. I, I had not planned to go there. Mm-hmm. When I got interviewed for that job, I was uh, in San Diego with my first husband and my 10-year commitment to the military was almost over and I was trying to decide whether to stay in the Navy or get out and that's when I decided, okay, I I would go ahead and leave the Navy because I didn't have to serve anymore and on the day I was supposed to fill out the paperwork to resign from the Navy because you have to fill out paperwork and then nine months later they'll let you go, that's when my boss called me and said that he wanted to nominate me to go to for the White House position, myself and four other people, I would compete against them. And so I said, well, go ahead and put my name in. And my ex-husband, you know, he said, oh, you'll never get that job, but it's a good resume item in case you can get chosen. So it shows you one of the teaching points is whoever your life partner is, you make sure they're your biggest fan, right? And he mm-hmm. was my biggest fan. Yeah. <laughs> they divorced him 13 years later. You make sure whoever you're with the rest of your life is your biggest fan, okay. that they believe in you, that they respect and trust. So anyway, I put my name in, and nine months later, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm being interviewed for the White House position. And the four other guys are, they all look like clones of Tom Cruise from that movie Top Gun back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. They're, they've got, you know, perfect hair, perfect teeth, they've got medals, and they're very confident that they're going to get the job, not me, because I look like the token Asian, small woman, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so when I got interviewed by the senior doctor, Bert Lee, one of the things he, it was bizarre, when I was, they brought me into the ground floor of the White House, and the incumbent physician, Dr. Robert, says, when you sit down here, I will uh, go introduce you to Dr. Lee. And, and Dr. Lee was the same age as George and Barbara Bush. He'd gone to Andover undergraduate with George Herbert Walker Bush, and he was on first name basis with the president and first lady, which nobody does. You can never call them by their first name. It's Mr. President or Mrs. Bush, you never never call them by that. So mm-hmm. he goes in, my, the incumbent doctor goes in and tells Dr. Lee, I have our next candidate here. And Dr. Lee says, well, do you have her resume? And he says, oh, no, I left it in the other building. And then it sounds like something being thrown against the wall. It's, you know, a book is thrown, and Dr. Lee's voice gets really gruff. He says, well, never mind, I'll make the decision. Mm-hmm. Then Dr. Roberts turns to me, and I'm sitting in the room outside of it. He goes, you're on. You're, you know, it's your turn to go inside. And so I stand up, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, you just upset the guy I have to interview with. Then what I did was something I always believe in, and that's prayer. And I said a little prayer, and I said, dear God, if this is meant to be, show me a sign. And God has always shown me signs throughout my life. So I walk into the room, and there's Dr. Lee. He's in his 60s, very distinguished gentleman and in a business suit. And I see the sign right away. And what it is is a single tan Band-Aid right across his forehead. And I thought, oh, my God, he's human. He can bleed. He's human, whatever that is. So he shakes my hand. He points to his desk in a, in a chair beside it and says, sit down, like really gruff, sit down, yeah. very dismissive. And I thought, oh, my God. As I'm walking over, I realized 
he doesn't believe in warming up. He doesn't believe in foreplay. And I tell audiences, this is before Bill Clinton became president, right? He got in trouble for a lot of stuff. So I sit down, opposite Dr. Lee, and he just goes right into my interview. He goes, why do you want this job? And I had prepared all these nice, politically correct responses. But what I said, because I didn't, I wasn't afraid anymore because I saw whatever sign that was, mm-hmm. I said, Dr. Lee, it's payback time. I owe a lot to the United States of America. My father was a poor man in the Philippines. He joined the Navy in the 1940s. He brought us to this country. I was educated here. I They couldn't pay my scholarships. They couldn't pay for my schooling. So I got scholarships to undergraduate and medical school. And I owe my career, my life to this country. And if I can repay my debt by serving the commander-in-chief, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I look at him, and there's no expression on his face. He's just like a flat, we say it's not a flat affect. He has poker face, as they say in Las Vegas. And so there was no expression. He's just like not impressed. And so I thought, oh, God, that, that was like a lead balloon. So the next question he asked is, what can you do here? And I said, I am, I am an internal medicine doctor. I've been on board ship. I've worked with the CDs. I, I can practice medicine anywhere you send me. I don't have to be at a large medical center. I know how to practice medicine in different settings. So once again, I look at him. There's no expression. He's just, you know, just quiet. I thought, oh, this is like really horrible interview because I'm not getting no feedback. And so a few seconds later, Caitlin, he stands up right in the middle of my interview. So I stood up and he said, as far as I'm concerned, we can stop the process right now. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I totally blew this interview. He's just going to throw me out of here. It's embarrassing. And he said, I don't care who we're interviewing today or tomorrow. Um, You've got the job. And I thought, oh, my God. And then he said, I'm going to go tell Barbara Bush. He says, and they shook my hand. He walked out the door. He took the elevator to the second floor of the White House to tell the First Lady. So I followed him out. I stood in the hallway, and then I looked at the other doctor who brought me in, and the secretary was sitting there, and they're like, what happened? I, I said, I, I think I got the job. So I, it's, you know, so I, you know, nine months, you know, a few months later, I get the job. You know, I'm at the White House because you have to go through the security clearance. Mm-hmm. And a year and a half later, I had Dr. Lee's job. I took his job. Mm-hmm. I became the senior doc. So it's, it's, it's a miracle. It is an act of God. It was meant to be. Mm-hmm. There is no doubt about it. There was no accident that I was led there. Mm-hmm. It's true. I really believe that. Yeah. I take those all as signs from God. Mm-hmm. That that's what I was meant to do. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's so, like, intimidating. Like, just that whole story. Like, like. It's seeing... just don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the other is speak with your true, authentic voice. Nobody can be you better than you. And the things, with, when we're afraid of what they will hear, we're afraid of, we're trying to please them. But really, you got to be true to you. What does your inner voice tell you? You know, it's not what they need to hear it's, or what they want to hear. It's what you need to say. And that honors your authentic voice. And that's how change happens is when you honor your true authentic voice. And somebody asked me one time when I did my presentation at the D.C. Armory, there were like 5,000 high school kids. I was telling them that story, and one of them asked me, how do I know I'm speaking with my true, authentic voice? And the little message in my mind says, when you no longer have to pretend, that is your true, authentic voice. If you don't need to pretend or put on an act, that's you. That's really you, without anybody judging you. That's you. Yeah. So would that be the advice that you give to someone? So, like, for myself, I feel like... I feel like with so many things that I do, I feel like I have, like, imposter syndrome. Like, oh, my gosh, like, am I deserving of this? Like, like, it's so easy for me to get intimidated. Um, 
But for you, like in your situation, I feel like the stakes were basically as high as they could get in the world. So, um, is yeah, that... you know what I say is, it's I always thought if this is God wants what wants me to do, but see, part of it is always feel I always intimidated. It was like when I grew up, the mantra from my parents is this: "You're never good enough." And I read, I write about it in my book. You're never good enough. You know, what is my secret to success? Always believing I'm never good enough. Mm-hmm. That you have to try harder and you have to work harder and you have to do. And and in a lot of ways, who do, who am I aiming to please? You know, a lot of times pleasing my parents, pleasing my friends. But in the end, you know, I shoot for a higher power. I shoot, what does God want me to do? That's mm-hmm. it, not to please. I've already got that part. What what does God want me to do? This is a this is actually a good time for for the for you interviewing me because I turned sixty five the end of this month, and I don't have to work ever. Oh, I know. Hey, thank you, dear. It's like I don't ever have to work again. But the thing is, I want to work. Part of it is I enjoy working. I have my own business. I take care of patients, and it's the joy of touching lives. It's the joy of being the message carrier and the storyteller, and that's why I'm still in this life. Why you know what keeps you going? Is, is touching lives. If if I can make better every life I touch, then I would have done my mission in this life. Every life I touch, you made a difference. Just, you know, even the person who serves you your coffee, that you somehow made them feel special. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned about taking care of presidents is, you know, Bill Clinton was very charismatic. And I spent eight years at the White House with them, and I still post a little bit to that family. But one of his gifts is wherever he went, if he met you, he would look at you and make you feel like you were the most important person in the room. Mm-hmm. He would he, he would make that eye contact. He would you would be in the now with that person. He, you know, it's like a lot of politicians. They'll shake your hand and they'll look away. They won't even connect. But the fact that when you see a person, they come into your into your space. You acknowledge them. You acknowledge their presence, and you look. You really look at them. And I think that's a gift that when every person, every soul you touch. You impact them in so many ways beyond what they imagine. You can make or break somebody's day easily, mm-hmm. easily. And that's sort of your mission. How do you want to impact? What can they impact to you? What can you give to them in your own way? So it's kind of like you've been able to find a balance between like, being, like continuing to be humble by telling yourself that you're not good enough, but then also on the other side, recognizing um the impact that you can have on people and, and being authentic. So it's kind of like a balance of, of both of those things. Yeah. It, yeah. It's trying to balance, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to, if you look at all the superficial things, the titles and go, Oh yeah, I can have a really big head like, bigger than anybody. Well then I wouldn't be able to stand myself because I can't stand people who have big heads like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always am drawn to the people who are humble and the nicest people I know are the most successful are the most humble. Mm-hmm. When my husband was dating me, I didn't know he was had gone to Harvard Business School mm-hmm. and how much money he had. Uh, one of my friends told me who researched him. I said, I don't need to know that. Yeah. I just care <laughs> about what kind of person he is. I don't need to know about his money or his wealth. I just I just want to know him as mm-hmm. a person, not his titles, because people hide behind the facade of their titles and their publications and all that. The true measure of a person is, you know, they they have a test called the CEO test. If you're interviewing an employee for a company or a CEO, you take them to, to dinner and you see how they treat the wait staff. Mm-hmm. How do you treat the bartender, the wait staff, the person driving your car, your maid? How do you treat those people? Mm-hmm. You know, if you treat them like servants and you don't treat them with respect, you know, you're not a nice person. You got it's 
in, in the Bible, it's however, you know, however you treat the, the, the least of my people, that's how you treat God, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you treat those people? Yeah. You know, every single one of them, how do you treat them? And it's important. Every single soul. Yeah, I found it so interesting in your book um, how many Filipinos were working at the White House, like as valets oh, and then in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, that's it's so connection. Cool. Oh, and they're strong. I mean, in the more, and that was a huge connection. My, my, I called it my Godfathers, the Master Chiefs. Mm-hmm. When the president gets up in the morning, the, the valets wake him up. They, they were that back in the Clinton White House. The Filipino valets would wake him up. They'd prepare his clothing. They, I would give them the little packages with his daily medications. If he wasn't feeling good, the valet would call me and say, the president woke up, he's not feeling I mean, they were that inner circle. They would take care of it. I mean, they would do the laundry. They would. They were like family. They, they had that, they were in that inner circle. Mm-hmm. So for me to be connected was huge. And, and they would tell me things. They would see more than most people would see. Yeah, That's true. that. And we actually, in the Mariano family, had an earlier connection to the White House with Marciano Mariano, mm-hmm. who was the... Um, was our let's see your auntie your grandmother Teresita's cousin mm-hmm. was was that that was their cousin he was at the White House as a valet under Kennedy mm-hmm. and he was there when President Kennedy was assassinated and so mm-hmm. his children would tell me they live in Washington they said that we knew about Marilyn Monroe before the president, that she would go up and visit President Kennedy. Oh my gosh. Said, how did you know how would you know about Marilyn Monroe? Because the, her father, the valet, would clean up after Marilyn Monroe visited. Oh my gosh. They, they would knew all the secrets. They would know whenever the president was visiting the first lady in her bedroom because President Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy had separate bedrooms. Oh. And so whenever the president wasn't in his bedroom, he was with her and they saw it's like, but they would know whenever Marilyn Monroe was smuggled into the White House when Jackie Kennedy was away because the valets would clean up. So, yeah, they would see everything. Oh, my gosh. That's why under Clinton, when Clinton was impeached during that trial, they deposed the valets. I never got deposed. Not got touch wood. That's good. But they got deposed because they saw everything. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I know. I told them they should write their book entitled Dirty Laundry. Like, oh, my gosh, yeah, they, they should. That would be amazing. <laughs> they would never. They yeah. Would never. They're <laughs> yeah. honorable. They wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, in your book, you were saying that you were the one who um, had to draw Clinton's blood, right, for... Um... For the DNA to Monica. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she would, she would hang outside my office waiting for her, and I thought, what is she doing out there? And they said... Well, she's delivering, like, papers. I'm like, why is she? Because you have to have a special pass to mm-hmm. get into the ground floor of the White House. Nobody can come through there. She was an intern. Yeah. was like, wondering, what's she doing here? Mm-hmm. I know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that is so intense, the things that you had to deal with. That's, like, these are, like, big monumental moments in history that, that you got to be a part of. Well, it's infamous moments, right? <laughs> yeah. Sort of touch, yeah. It's sad because all the good things he did were yeah. people remember was Monica, which is really sad. Mm-hmm. The economy did well. He did a lot of great things. He was a wonderful president. He was a great communicator. He, he you know, he he loves this country. He, he was just a wonderful, a great way to communicate. But it's just, it's our human foibles. It's our human weaknesses that people remember, which is sad. Yeah, and I, sure. I tell my office that you could do a thousand great things, but if you screw up once, that's what they get you on. That's mm-hmm. all they'll remember. And that's a sad thing. Yeah. You know, it can negate all the good things you did. Yeah, definitely. That's really sad. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you were there from 92 to 2001? Yeah. So I was there at the end of Bush Senior. Mm-hmm. That was their re-election campaign, all of Clinton. And then when W came on board, I was there for about six months, but I turned most of my work over to Dr. Tuff, right. who succeeded me. So I was getting ready to retire and then come out to Arizona work at the Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I find it so cool that you were able to work with um, with presidents from both parties. Um, you know, you, you just treat them like anybody yeah. else. You know, it's when when they transition from one administration to the other, there's not a lot of guidance because one day, you know, the, the one group leaves and then the next day the new group comes in and they're totally different. And the people who stay are the, the Secret Service, the military, and the, the people who work in the housekeeping. So I went and I talked to the housekeepers who've been there 30 years, a long time, their whole career. And I said, what do you do when you have a new president? And they just said, you treat them like anybody else who lives in this house. That's all you care about. Whoever You take care of whoever lives in the house. And there are people like anybody else. You just treat them like anybody. They, you know, people are people. They, just, yeah. they can have different affiliations. Just treat them like anybody else, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, did you ever experience, like, um, disagreeing with, with the president and, and their policies? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, not, we never talked policy. We just, yeah. it was always his health issues. Mm-hmm. And there were times the president was non-compliant on his medications. And I would tell him, one time, there was a story, I think I told my book, that President Clinton had like a stomach flu. It was on a Saturday, so I came to the Oval Office. There's a picture in the Oval Office. And he looks really pale. And I said, well, you know, he's not drinking enough fluids. And I said, you need to cancel your work today. It's Saturday. He says, well, I'm doing... I'm doing videotapings for re-election. I said, Mr. President, you look horrible. I said, you really need to just, you know, go home to the White House, you know, down the hall, and just take the day off. You look bad. You don't look good. He says, well, I got to do this. I said, I said, if you don't listen to me, I just said, listen, if you don't listen to me, I'm just going to tell the First Lady. Yeah. And then at which point he's like, okay, I'm done. Okay, I'll, I'll listen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They all listen. <laughs> you, you invoke the name of the First Lady. Yeah. And then he, then he listened. Because and, and when you disagree with them respectively, they know you care about it because everybody else is saying yes to them. They're all kissing their butts. Mm-hmm. They're saying yes. And you're like, no, 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 I care about you. I'm not going to agree with that. I'm going to say what I would believe I would tell anybody else. And this is, that's not good for you. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm going to tell you. And yeah. you can say yes or no, but yeah, if you do it respectfully, you know, that's, that's, they know you care for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess, like, everyone would, would be, like, wanting to please the president and, and saying what they want oh, yeah. to hear, but to be oh, the yeah. opposite, like the one person it's who... obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that must it's, have... It's sad because, yeah, they all want a piece of you. They're all... It's sad to see that because you, wit- you witness people trying to be great by association to, you know, be in their circle and you're just like, oh, man, they're sycophants. Mm-hmm. I know, you look at that. If you read, you know, if you want to know about politics, read Machiavelli's The Prince. Okay. That's a classic. And yeah. I tell everybody to read Machiavelli's The Prince, and it's what happens in the court, how people court favor with that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's FaceTime. Whatever FaceTime you can get, that's the currency in politics. Yeah. You know, how did I learn about politics? I When I was in student government, I learned as much about politics in high school that I learned, and then I was a poli-sci major in college. So oh, cool. you learn a lot about that. Yeah, but it's human behavior yeah everyone wants to be important you know like when you're in high school you've got you've got the cheerleaders you've got the the nerds you've got the people who are the athletes you've got the big men on campus you've got you know you know who's in and, and especially so social media you see how many likes 
popular, who's trending, you know, it's what the social consciousness is doing. I mean, that's, uh, it's just fun to watch this human behavior, right? Yeah. It's so popular. What does that mean? We have to be hot and popular and trending. It's going viral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny how those things from high school all still, like, relate to adulthood and even, like, oh, like yeah. the presidency. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's cool that you well, could be, like, the it, one person to, to stand up to the president and, and not necessarily say exactly what he wants to hear. Well, it's funny, though. I think at the New York Times, or it was the Washington Post made a comment, because one time Clinton had laryngitis, and I said, you need to stop talking, you need to shut up. That's what I told him. <laughs> yeah. And the Washington Post said the only person who could tell the president to shut up is the doctor. Mm-hmm. But you do it respectfully so. Yeah, of course. Stop talking. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but then part of that, you do it because they respect what you say, and you're not trying to take advantage of them. You just care about them. And, you, you know, you're going out on a limb. You're going to disagree. And if they're truly a good person, they'll say, listen, I respect that, and I will listen to you. That's fine. I mean, it isn't about always always agreeing. But but if you disagree, you, you don't slam the person. You do it respectfully and just say, we have a disagreement of ideas or recommendations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, is it's there... interesting you brought up about high school. Yeah. One of the things my husband would use when he would hire people for his company, he would ask them to share what they were like in high school. Oh. <laughs> you know, what, what were you like? In, what, so what were you like in high school? Me? Um, oh, man. I feel like I was a bit of a nerd. I was, like, involved in, in everything. Like, I was a part of every club and, like, played lots of sports and stuff. Um, yeah, I was, like... Very involved and a little bit nerdy. <laughs> How about really, you? That's okay. Yeah, I, I, I was that way too. Yeah, I was. I was very, very nerdy. Mm-hmm. I never thought I was pretty, but I was smart. And what it, I always thought, I'm, I'm smart. I don't think I'm pretty because you know, growing up, if you're dark, like I'm dark on the Mariano side, mm-hmm. and the Hinkos are very light because that's Chinese side. Then I thought, oh gosh, I'm dark like my dad. I'm not beautiful. Blah blah blah. I always believed that stuff. Then even though I, I'm not beautiful like like cousin Tessa, uh, cousin Remy, she was the beauty queen of the family. Oh yeah, because she was good. She was Miss Santa Rita and all that. She was beautiful. Oh, she, I didn't know that. I was, was the brainy part. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. She was. I think I think Remy was the beauty queen. Yeah, she was that. I was just the nerd. <laughs> I was the dark nerd. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, well, if I can, if I'm smart, then I can be successful. And I can have money. I can buy beauty. That's viable. I can. <laughs> <laughs> but what made me beautiful was my husband. Mm-hmm. John made me beautiful because he believed in me. And he thought he saw the beauty, and I became beautiful as a result mm-hmm. of him. That's, oh, that's, that's so how nice. I became beautiful. Mm-hmm. When you have somebody who loves you so much, then you become beautiful. And I can tell in all my pictures, I became more beautiful with mm-hmm. him, and he became, you know, healthier and handsome. And you can tell there's a look of love. When you know if you're dating somebody, you're the right person. You look at your pictures and you look at how you look at each other. You can tell. Yeah. You can tell. You can tell in the pictures. Pictures don't lie. Mm-hmm. And if I have friends and I said, well, are you dating so-and-so? And I can tell when I meet people and I ask them to share the story of how they met and how they look at each other. You can tell how that relationship will turn out mm-hmm. right away, how they look at each other. But yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, yeah, so you were nerdy, and you were <laughs> involved in a lot of things, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good thing, that's mm-hmm. a good, yeah, it's good, it'll, it'll pay for your therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah, yeah, I, I loved, um, I love what you said just there about, about relationships and, and how they can make you more beautiful, and I, oh, I love, um, I love the story of, of how you and your husband met, you have that in your book there? 
Oh my god, I know. <laughs> it was meant to be. I really think we've had past lives together. Yeah. Oh, we have so many nice. past lives. Mm-hmm. He was my soulmate. And yeah. uh, he will, I know when it's my time, he'll come get me. But right now, mm-hmm. I still have things to do in this life. But he, it was magical. It was. I, I wasn't looking for anybody. I didn't date. Mm-hmm. I had no intention to date. Yeah. And no, how long no, after, um, yeah, how long after, um, you left the White House did you, did you meet your husband? I met him two years later, because I moved to Arizona in 2001, mm-hmm. and then I was at Mayo Clinic, and in 2002, I saw, I met him at the executive health program, he's a patient of mine. Right. He came for physical, because I had the medical records to prove it, and then the following year, 2003, he came for his annual exam, and he said he was going to a divorce. Mm-hmm. I said, oh my God, I said, I'm so sorry, I said, did you, did you, um, did you meet somebody? He says, no, and he told me all the reasons why, and then. And then five years, and he stayed on as my patient. Then five years later, I was going to my divorce, and I see, I'm sitting in my office now. He was sitting in my office for his physical in November that year, and I was telling him that, you know, how are you? Are you dating anyone? He's like, oh, no, it's horrible. He's telling all these horror stories of dating. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm hiring a matchmaker in L.A. I said, wow, how much is that? He said, it's 25 grand. I said, oh, my gosh. spending 25000 for a matchmaker? I said, <laughs> What, what do you get for that? He goes, five introductions. And I laugh. I said, to what? What are you guys, What are you dating? And I laughed. I said, you know, John, listening to you and your horror stories of dating, I have no intentions of dating whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, well, I thought you were married to Richard. I said, I was married for 29 years. And I, I laugh. The way I tell women groups, I say, I left him for another woman. I left him for me. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. Well, then, yeah, it's true. It was like, mm-hmm. I left him for me. And I was the... I, I needed to get, break loose from that marriage. I wasn't happy. Yeah. He wasn't seeing the future as I was. We didn't yeah. share anything other than children who were in college. And I I was in my 50s. I said, I don't want to spend the next three years with this person. I would die. I would, no way. Yeah. So I left him and I moved on. I'm getting, I, I moved out. I'm getting a divorce. And John goes, you're getting a divorce? I said, yeah. He goes, marry me. I said, <laughs> what? I, I, I said, that's unethical. I'm your doctor. I checked your prostate. No, I can't marry <laughs> I said, I'll. I'll introduce you to one of my patients as a chief financial officer. He said, I don't want to date her. I want to date you. I didn't know. So I sent him out back to Indiana. He emails me the next day. Inasmuch as you turned down my proposal for marriage, come with me to the Pacelli concert in December when I come back to see it. I said, no. <laughs> December rolls around. He calls me one day. I know. I love the persistence. He calls me one, one afternoon, one evening. He says, hey, what are you doing tonight? I said, I just dropped off my girlfriend, Maddie. I'm just going home. He said, aren't you lonely? I said, no, I'm actually quite happy. I've got my own little place. There's no drama. It's wonderful. I have my practice. He said, let me tell you how miserable it is to be alone. So we talked till three in the morning. Aww. We talked every day. And then the sign from God was January 20, 2008. Let me get their date right. 2008, January 20. Yes, yeah, this is coming up this year, 2008. He calls me that Sunday. He says, hey, I'm in town because I'm getting my colonoscopy tomorrow. I said, I know. I set that up. He says, do you want to go to the Phoenix Suns game tonight? I said, John, this is a bad day. This would have been my, this is my 29th wedding anniversary in 2008. I'm with Richard at a cafe. We're doing the divorce settlement. And because I have been the breadwinner for 29 years, he gets half my retirement check from the baby. Oh, wow. I have to write him a big check for half the assets for the marriage because he can split everything in half. He gets the house. He gets this. I have to write him a check. So I'm not happy. And, and John goes, you know, Connie, 
divorce is expensive because it's worth it. He says, I've been through that. I know what that's like. You will recoup all your money in five years, which I did. Mm -hmm. But he said, listen, um, do you just want to meet for coffee? I said, you know, okay, I'll meet you at Nordstrom Cafe in three hours. So I meet him at the Nordstrom Cafe, third floor down the street. And he's, I'm in jeans. I've got a sweatshirt on. I'm not even dressed. I'm really despondent. And he has this wonderful jacket. He's got flags. You know, it's all trim and proper. He's got a box of chocolates for Valentine's Day next month. And he's got Gary Chapman's book, which you should read. Another book I'll say okay. called The Five Languages of Love. I'll give you my reading list. Okay. I'll put my, it's called The Five Languages of Love. It's called The Five Languages of Love. I'll send you three books. Okay. Thank you you got to read it. Five Languages of Love. I'll send you my top three books. Five Languages of Love. Uh, and he says, we should read this. This is a really good book about finding your perfect partner. I said, John, I said, this is very nice. It's not a date. So he goes, okay. <laughs> I said, so I'll go get a booth. So he sits down. I go get my iced tea. And my hands are shaking, Caitlin. I'm like, why are my hands shaking? Oh, my God. What, what? This is not a date. I'm just sitting down with this guy. So we sit down in the booth. And the first thing I say to him, because I'm into control. I like control, obviously. Mm -hmm. I said, what are you looking for? And if he were here, he would say, it's bitchier than that. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? <laughs> and he says, he's very sweet. He says, I'm looking for a life partner. He goes, what are you looking for? I said, well, one of my wise friends said, you know what you don't want because you just left him, right? Your last marriage. He said, you know, whatever he had, whatever was going on in that relationship was not for you. So if you ever want to be with somebody again, Write a list of the qualities of your perfect mate and read it every day. If you focus on those things you are seeking that you want, if you focus on those positive things, it's it's Rhonda Byrne's law of attraction. You will, they will come to you. Mm -hmm. So I have a list on my that time my BlackBerry of the qualities of my perfect mate. He says, "Do you mind reading it to me?" I said, "No, I'll take it out." It's under a file called Ideal. So I take out my BlackBerry. I start reading it. He says, "Let me see that." I hand him my phone. He goes through the list. Each of the things. That I live, he says, I can do that. I can do that. Your shoes logo. And he goes, and so I'm watching him go through my list, and I'm just smiling because it's very endearing. And I'm realizing he's really going to the job interview. Why? Oh he's goodness. the right guy. Mm -hmm. And so as I as I watch him, I just smile. I thought, you know what? I better date him because his balls are bigger than mine. Just a little <laughs> bit bigger than my balls. <laughs> and, so, and so I said, okay, I think we can make this work. So then I didn't even hug or kiss him or anything. What we then did, we started negotiating. We said, well, you know, we're both fairly smart. We both did. He was married 23 years, 21 years. I was married 29. Mm -hmm. We have experience. We each have kids. We, we have, you know, life experience. I said, we can do this smart. We're both smart people. How can we make this work? So we, we decide how we, you know, our plan, how to make our relationship work. I think we shook hands or something. What's that oh, my gosh. Right? That's we amazing. We kiss him. And then we said, okay, let's see if we can date. What's this? <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's just funny, and that's how we started. That's then amazing. About, uh, we got married. Let's see. Then I, I filed my divorce. I, I'm still married legally. Filed my divorce, and then I married him. I twenty. That was in two thousand. I married him two years later. Mm -hmm. Year and a half, two, two and a half years later, I got married to him. Yeah, I know. Is that interesting? Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, was like, he was so oh, persistent. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Mm -hmm. I, he knew what he wanted. Yeah. I know. I know. That's so funny. But yeah, he, he had that. He knew what he wanted. He just knew. Mm -hmm. And I thought, um, I know. That's that past life thing. No, yeah. it's true. There were so many things we had in common. It was like, whoa. How do, where do, but I know had I met him earlier, we would have not gotten along because I was so ambitious about my career that mm -hmm. I needed a husband who 
was willing to stay at home with the kids, who was supportive, there's no way John would have tolerated what I worked at the White House gone a lot. Right. He would not have tolerated that. He was the right man at the right time for the right job. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you recommend doing that, writing down the list of qualities? Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. So whoever you want, you should do it. This is where you ask God and the universe to send you the perfect partner. And so you have to ask yourself, Caitlin, what kind of person are you seeking? What they look like? What their personality is? What, you know, my list has a, I think I can, I remember, a lie full of life and light, laughter, they have a great laugh, they're supportive of me, they're not threatened by what I do. Mm-hmm. They are, they, they're intelligent, they're successful, but they're their own person, but they also like to cuddle, you know, they like to cuddle, they like to say, I love you every morning and every night and whenever we say goodbye, they're affectionate, they're warm, they're giving, they're, they're good to my family. Those are the, you know, the things that you find important that are meaningful to you. I mean, we like the same foods, we like to travel, we like to laugh, he has a great sense of humor. One of the things I put is he's my biggest fan. He is my biggest fan. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole issue of trust and respect has my back, he protects me. Um, if you just you focus on those things and then write your things, everyone's different, and then you focus on it, and what will happen is that person will come to you. You will, you will start picking up, not the negatives, but those people who meet that, that that caliber and if it's sent by God they will be beyond that they'll be better than your list they'll be your list plus mm-hmm. okay well I'll have to do that then <laughs> and hopefully 2020 yeah, will bring you something show me good your list. you gotta tell yeah. me you gotta tell me what's on your list. okay I don't know what's on my list I've never made one but <laughs> you gotta but, do it it's yeah. an order to the universe okay. you're sending an order a request to the universe to God this is what I'd like yeah Send me this person. you gotta ask right yeah <laughs> Yeah, you gotta ask her. You won't get anything. <laughs> That's right. Do you did you just do that for a partner, or did you also write those things down for a career and for other things in your life? It was just for my partner. Mm-hmm. It was just when when I was going through my divorce, and my friend said, "Well, if you ever want to be with someone, what do you want? Mm-hmm. What do you want?" And so this is what I put. And I remember when I had moved out, I had my own little house. First time I lived alone in ever. Mm-hmm. by myself because I always had like roommates in college and I had, afterwards I got married in med school that I was living by myself and I remember one day it was in January of 2000 yeah it was 2008 no it was 2007 um, I was driving back to my little uh, place I was living and it was raining and I was so lonely I, and I said I said a prayer to God I said dear God if you want me to be alone I will accept that I will accept being alone if that's what you want. But if you want me to have someone in my life, send me somebody who will cherish me mm-hmm. and make it so obvious to me that that's the right person. Because sometimes we don't get it if someone's interested. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I never knew it. So it was really obvious with John. And he, cher- yeah. he did. He cherished me. Mm-hmm. He did. He knew how to cherish me. And we had the same language of love. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I wanted somebody who cherished me. It's important for me to have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like he made it extremely obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I loved. It's mm-hmm. so flattering. It was so wonderful. Yeah. That is the goal. Hopefully someday for me, I will find that as well. <laughs> yeah, well, put it on your put it on your blog. If, yeah. you ever, if you ever want to put it out, you know what? You can say, my Aunt Connie told me to do this. And <laughs> okay. It's sort of like, if you read Rhonda Burns' The Secret, this is mine. You put it out there. You don't know. Somebody's going to say, hey, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, okay. that's a great way to find it. You do that, and then somebody who reads your blog, first of all, they got to believe in you. They read your blog and says, 
hey, you know what? That's what I'm looking for. That's, that you just described me to a T. <laughs> okay, well, I will think about doing that. <laughs> yeah, when you're yeah. ready to write your yeah. own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, back to you. Um, so, since you left the White House, what, what have you been working on? What's all the things that you've been doing? Oh, let's see, I, I was at Mayo for three and a half years, so mm-hmm. I met John there. Mm-hmm. A lot of my initial patients I met there. And then in 2000, 2000, look, I get the dates right, in um, 2005, yeah, 2005, I formed my private practice. So I'm entering, there is this 14 years now in private practice, where I have over 300 patients, and I'm on call 24-7. It's a what we call concierge practice. They they pay a membership fee, mm-hmm. and uh, they pay for office visits. And I own my building uh, that I bought years ago. And I have patients from around the world, and I'm on call. And I do their physicals, and we coordinate their care. They're fascinating people. They fly in on their jets. Um, about a third of them live. Well, half of them live up in this area or have homes here. This is a busy season, so they all come in for the nice weather. And then the summer it slows down, but they're everywhere. I have patients from Canada and uh, Zurich and, let's see, New Zealand. They're all over the place. But they're they're wonderful. They're amazing people. Mm -hmm. Really blessed. They're great patients. So I'm busy with that. And then my book came out in uh, 20, the year I got married. So Mm -hmm. what what year was that? 2010. And then my radio show, this is the fifth season I'm entering my radio show. Then my book got optioned to CBS Studios this past summer. So CBS apparently is working on it to do a TV series. I haven't heard that. Oh, wow. So my attorney says that's what normally what they do. Yep, they, they've got the, the rights to my book to do a television series. So Oh, my gosh, that's so cool. Am I? Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and then and I was in New York a month ago, and I went met with my publisher at St. Martin's Press, and they want me to do another book, mm-hmm. to do a book proposal. And this is on longevity and how to live long and healthy. Know, and what does it take based on lessons that I've learned from presidents and, and from my CEO patients. So I've got to work on that. Mm-hmm. Wow, so I've cool. got a, uh, a, a writer who does some work for me in Oregon, so I've got to get her to start helping me get the book proposal together. So i got lots. You know what? I have plenty to do. That's the thing. Yeah. I think the thing that's hard, Caitlin, is missing John, because mm-hmm. there's always that constancy that he was there in my life, that we had things to look forward to, to travel. He would inspire me. It was just, you know, I go home now, it's quiet. Mm-hmm. I, I sold my big house, so I, I moved into a high-rise condo that's smaller, but it's just all I need is just me, and I'm building another house. But it's just a different life now in the span of, my gosh, it's, he's been gone six months. Mm-hmm. So it's been a dramatic change, and it's just, you know, it's just welcoming the new, finding my new path. What's, what's new for me? The constancy is still medicine. And it still keeps me engaged in life and people. He, he'd want me to still do that, to, to keep working in the sense that I can still connect with people. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you write, you're you're working inside your head. It's, you can be writers. I, I write between 10, a, 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. Yeah, oh, when wow. I was writing my book. Mm-hmm. Because when nobody, when nobody calls you, you're left alone. When I wrote my book, it was in the middle of my divorce, and I was starting to date John. Mm-hmm. I moved out. I had my own little place I was renting, and I would write my book late at night watching reruns of Sex and the City. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> well, I figure if, if I can read this and stay awake at night, that whoever reads it will be, they won't put him to sleep. They'll yeah. watch the read. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So 
Oh, I'm back in that phase now. I've got to start writing that next book. Yeah, yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I didn't, and I didn't know that there was like they're considering a TV show. That's so interesting. Yeah, they have to con. The whole thing. Yeah, uh, CBS Studios has it. So whatever they do, we'll see what they do. They haven't called me yet. Yeah. They say once they start working on the script and the casting, they'll call you because they have to pay for you to come out. Right. So. I said, that'll be fun. I have plenty of gowns. I could, you know, like, <laughs> I'd like to win an Emmy one day. That's yeah. my bucket list. Oh my gosh, say. that would be so cool. I'd like, I'd like to be on the New York Times list for one of the books. Mm-hmm. In order to get on the New York Times list, bestseller list, you have to sell 10,000 books in one week. Wow. So with the right type of book and the right type of marketing and social media, you could do that. Mm-hmm. You do that. And the other is to win an Emmy. And mm-hmm. an Emmy is television. So yeah. well, I can work on that. Those yeah. are things to work on. Those are huge goals, but... You have been a, a doctor in the White House, so it's it's definitely possible. Oh, but the guy was telling people the greatest honor was being married to John. Yeah. Was my greatest honor was being married, was being yeah. his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, life-changing. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that you, you learned from being married to him? You know, I, I think I learned just what it was like to be a wonderful wife and partner. Mm-hmm. And and to be, he was my perfect partner. Mm-hmm. And to to be supportive and loving, and whatever he wanted to do, I was supportive. You know, somebody told me one of the wives said, "Well, why did you let him go gliding? That's how he died. Why did you allow that?" Mm-hmm. I said, well, "I couldn't control that. That is what he loved to do. That is not my job to stop. You know, doing that. I mean, he did that since he was sixteen in Canada. He." That's what it was like telling me, it would be telling me, you can never visit your grandchildren again. Yeah. You know, truly people who love you, they want to elevate you and be supportive of those things that you love. Mm-hmm. Provided it's not, you know, it's not destructive. But, you know, he he died because God sent for him. I think really it was his time. Mm-hmm. And he, he's in a place of great joy. He's always with me spiritually. I, I miss him physically, but he will always be with me. Mm-hmm. He, and he's given me so many gifts and changed me in so many good ways that that I'm a better person. I think you know the right person comes into your life because how do you know if when you're dating somebody or married somebody, how do you know that's the right person? Mm-hmm. I always believe that if that it's the right person because you are better because of them. You have gotten better. And when we got married, I became a better person. And he became better. All his friends said after he met you and he married you, he was a lot. We've never seen him as happy as he was. He was healthier. He was happier. He was a nicer guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't always like that. He wasn't until he married you. And I thought, that's how you know you were with the right person. They allow you to be the best you can be. That's Those are your friends. Your friends allow you to be the best you can be, but your perfect partner, you are the best person you can be because of them. And that's, when I was married to him, I was the best person I could be because of him. Mm-hmm. That's what he gave me, and then that's what I carry in my soul with him. That that spirit of John, be the best you can be, what you're meant to be in this life. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I love that. That's so that's so nice. Wow, I don't I don't want to take up too much of your time. I feel like I feel like I have so many questions and could could go on for on and on and on. I feel like you have so much wisdom about not. Well, we can do ongoing, no problem. Yeah, can, okay. You need to come out and interview me in, here in Arizona. Oh my gosh, I, I would love a, to do where that. Today, I've got a guest room, so I've got yeah. one guest. My big house I sold had three. Oh, I have lots of room, mm-hmm. but this one has um, it, it's got a, a guest room, so I always have a guest room. 
available. And I live, it's wonderful. It's in a shopping area. Mm -hmm. So you just walk out the door and there are all these shops and, and restaurants. It's wonderful. It's yeah. my playground. Yeah, yeah, it sounds yeah, cool. It's I've got definitely... great energy. So when it's really cold and snowy there, yeah, send me a text me and say, hey, I want to come to Arizona and just fly out and stay, stay with me for a weekend or so. Okay, that would they be amazing. Can, yeah. You can just come and visit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you can visit um, Andrew and Aaron, who live 35 minutes away, and the three grandbabies. Yeah, you okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I'm not a fan of family. the winter, so I'm always up to leave. Oh, my God. You would love it. I'm looking out the window. It's like mm -hmm. 72 degrees. It's sunny. There's no clock. It's spectacular. Mm -hmm. And if you Google pictures of Sedona, we'll show, you'll come up to Sedona with me. I'll bring you up to Sedona. I'll show you where the, the house is being built. We'll see at the Enchantment Resort. We'll okay. do a weekend at the Enchantment. Okay. Yeah, I'm, you're, uh, I think Auntie Gina's coming up. Actually, she's oh, yeah. coming up to visit me, um, I think, later in the springtime. She's coming out, and she's going to visit me. So okay. we're going to go up to Sedona. Yeah. Nice. Just sit, look at, when it's really miserable there, you got to come here, because when it's in the winter here, it's beautiful. Yeah. That's why people come here in the winter. It's mm -hmm. gorgeous. It's okay. beautiful. Yeah, that would be amazing. Okay, okay cool. Yeah, I just okay. have a, a few final questions, sure. uh, if that's okay, if you still have time. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, okay, so the first one um, that I have, but I didn't ask it. Um, so what was the biggest thing that you learned um, while working in the White House? What is the biggest thing? I always think you have to serve a higher purpose. And, you know, I always tell people when you come to the White House, your time is limited. You're not there forever. Nobody stays forever. You know, government tours, the president stays four to eight years. Nobody stays longer. Uh you got to realize if you're there, you either leave better or bitter, okay? And mm -hmm. it's better or bitter. And the difference between better or bitter is the letter I. If it's all about you, you're going to leave bitter because you're coming there to take. If you come here to give, you will benefit so many ways. If it's all about how can I make this better, you'll do well. If, if it, you come in there and say, well, what is it for me? You will leave bitter because you will have a bad experience. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, everybody who goes to the White House thinking, I'm going to get something out of this. No, something bad happens. No, you come in there saying, how can I do this job to my best ability to serve? If you do that, you'll have a very positive experience. Mm -hmm. cool. um, what's something that you've been learning lately? Oh, it's hard for me to play because John always said, you need to play. And it's really, really, really hard because I've been the workaholic. Mm -hmm. All I do is work, and I remember one time, about a month after he died, I, in the morning when I get up, I do my daily devotional, and I pray, and I meditate, and I was meditating, and I was laughing, I was sitting there meditating in silence, because you quiet the monkey brain, and you can focus, and what the image that popped up in my mind was the face of a Barbie doll with a gold lame top on her, a, a blouse, it was gold, I thought, why did I get an image of a Barbie doll? What, what is that? And I, John, why did you send me this? What does this mean? And I'm not a Barbie. I work hard. And, and, the, the, and then I realized when I was a little girl, I would play with Barbie dolls. I was always into Barbie dolls. And I had my Barbie and blah, blah, blah. And, I, and what he's telling me is you need to play. You mm -hmm. need to find what you do for play. And I would tend to justify saying, well, Einstein said creativity is intelligence having fun. Yeah, but it's got to be where you like to play and do what's fun. So I said, well, I need to probably do that. With I used to like to run, so I'm going to start going to do my 5Ks, my, you know, doing that, walking more, 
and just, well, I like to shop, but I don't need any more stuff. And just see more of my friends, and that's my play, mm-hmm. and then travel. So that's what I'm going to do is try to play, you know, and I think that's, I, I, I need to learn to play because all it's about work. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be, you know, you know, I have to be a perfect, just go have fun. Somebody once said that if you want to be a writer, you have to have at least two hours of downtime a day where you just don't check your email, don't check anything, just chill and walk and think where you synthesize your thoughts, and that's what writers do. Writers is your craft. That's work. Mm-hmm. And as you think, and you, you become contemplative and, and reflect so that you can write. That really helps. And then read other things as well. When, when I used to write, the problem is if I read other people's work at the same time, I start talking like them. But you don't necessarily have to start talking like, if you read multiple things, if you look at where I am, I have all these books. My God, we have a huge library. But what I do, it, I have on my nightstand five or six books at once. And then usually if I'm on an airplane trip, I read, I try to get books read. Mm-hmm. And then I try not to sound like the author that I'm reading. You have to speak with your own voice. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's just the challenge. And writing, is you're never done. I mean, all of a sudden an idea will come like, oh, I need to write that down right now. And then what am I going to do with that thought or that phrase? I need to use it somewhere. So mm-hmm. I need to discipline myself so that I, I, can, I can write more. Because John knows that's my play. My radio show is my play. Yeah. That's my fun. That's my creative. That's a lot of fun. That's mm-hmm. the storytelling. That's the play. But also it's purposeful because it helps other people. Yeah, for sure. Cool. I love that. So learning to to play more yeah yeah um and then work what on playing i'll say work on play yeah yeah right <laughs> i'll write that down i need to work more on playing yeah yep. okay work yeah. on playing okay yeah. got it okay <laughs> um and then what is the most important lesson that you've learned in life so far or just like like a big lesson that stands out to you oh boy I think, I think it's to be grateful. You know, there's so many things. You look at our life journey. You and I wouldn't be, you wouldn't be in Canada. I wouldn't be in the U.S. had that not been for our grand, great-grandparents. Mm-hmm. You know, the Hinko side of the family and the Marianas. I mean, all those people, the struggles they went through, uh, the Mariano and Hinko side, you, you wouldn't be here. Uh, and we wouldn't be here if, 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 um, Uncle Pepe, if Papin Pepe didn't marry Inang Sitan, and that's how my dad met my mom. Mm -hmm. When um, your Koya, when your Uncle Joe was born, my dad was in the Navy and he was on liberty from the Navy. He went back to Santa Rita to see the new baby Mm -hmm. um, because Uncle Joe was born. So he went to go see him, and that's when he met my mom. Mm -hmm. And that's how they got married was that baby. I didn't know that. And, yeah, that's how they met because, you know, they didn't know each other. And she was 27, and he, yeah, he was 28. And so she was, they thought she was the old babe, you know, dentist. Mm-hmm. She was living <laughs> with her parents in Santa Rita in the big house. Mm-hmm. And so it was after your grandparents, yeah, yeah your grandparents, um, had your older uncle. Mm-hmm. And, again, if they had gotten married, they, you wouldn't have had your father because he was the baby. Right. You know, I remember your dad is a little boy. He was so close to me, though. He was so cute. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh-huh. hold him on our lap. Uh-huh. He was so cute. I know. I yeah. know. He was so cute. Yeah. Yeah. I we still remember him as a little boy. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like my dad is is still, like, just, like, a, the youthful 
the youthful fun guy. <laughs> so I'm excited that he's a he's a grandpa now. So it's so it's so cute. To I see. know. Mm-hmm. So the most important lesson you say is to be grateful. Yes, to be grateful. Yeah. Never take anything for granted. Be forever mm-hmm. grateful, and also know who's in charge. And if you ask, if you do things based on how does this serve God, you have to have that higher power. Serve a higher power, mm-hmm. something a greater, greater and bigger than ourselves. Serve that. Because in the end, God wins. Mm-hmm. In the end, God wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for taking this You're time welcome. to talk to me. I loved having this conversation. Oh, that. Yeah, I well, feel like... Yeah, you do, and I'll post it on my social media, too. Okay, awesome. Your, thank your, your, you. Your blog. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, oh, my gosh, okay, I feel like, like, like I have touch. so many questions, and I could just keep talking oh, to you. Email <laughs> okay. Yeah, just email me at my email address at my doctor, and I'll respond. Not a problem. Okay, awesome. Okay? Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, right, for give sure. Give your mom and dad. Okay, right, happy, new year, dear. happy new year. Happy new year. Thank yeah. you so much. All right, dear. Okay, God bless. Bye. Bye-bye.